I, I found myself in that situation where I, I was treating the horse photographs differently to I was the other stuff I was doing. And then I suddenly realized that I shouldn't do that. I treat it in exactly the same way. You know, I, I frame it in the same way. I give things space. I process it the same way. Suddenly I did that and it all dropped into place. And hopefully it became a thread. You know, you can look at a, a long exposure picture of mine or something a bit more abstract. And you look at a horse picture and it, they all sort of run. You know, it, it sort of follows through. Welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. You just heard Jonathan Critchley, one of the world's foremost fine art photographers, talking about developing his distinct and timeless style. Much more to come from Jonathan in just a wee minute. In the meantime, I'm Graham Dargie, a professional photographer based in Aberdeen, Scotland, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so as we delve into the thoughts of one of the best photographers in the world. How's your week been? I feel like I'm in a bit of a time warp because when this episode comes out, I'll be on holiday. So I'm recording this intro a couple of weeks before the episode comes out. Uh, So I can't exactly tell you what I've been up to this week, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, yeah, I was really busy just trying to get ahead of things before the holiday. Still working on this live event for autumn, which I'm so excited for. Just a couple of details to finalise. So yeah, you'll be hearing about that in the ad slots soon and I'll fill you in on the holiday and a couple of bits of work that I've got going on when I get back to the future, if you know what I mean. Anyway, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe or follow Viewfinders on your favourite platform and if you really love this show, drop me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Also find me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast and drop me a message to let me know if you have any feedback or suggestion for future guests. Okay, without further ado, my guest this week is fine art photographer Jonathan Critchley. Jonathan's work is instantly recognisable and can be found in exhibitions, galleries, magazines, books and fine art collections around the world. His regular clients include Ralph Lauren, Ritz-Carlton and Vogue magazine. Jonathan also speaks and presents his work at photography and sailing events worldwide and he's the founder and owner of Capture Earth and Ocean Capture, two companies specialising in luxury photography workshops and tours. Jonathan was named one of the top 100 photographers of all time by both the UK's Sunday Times newspaper and professional photographer magazine. His first book, Silver, was published in 2014 and in 2016 he was made a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Our conversation covers the pivotal moments in Jonathan's life that led him to his signature style, how he creates his timeless images of horses, sailing boats and icebergs, the importance and value of staying on brand, and of course the stories behind some of his most beautiful images. This conversation came at just the right time for me and I picked up a few things from Jonathan that have made a real difference in my own photography journey. I'm sure you'll have a few takeaways as well from a truly unique photographer whose timeless style and glass half-full attitude is as refreshing as the ocean breeze he captures with his camera. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Critchley. Uh, Jonathan Critchley, welcome to the Viewfinders podcast. How are you? Hi, Graham. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Just uh, talking about the weather before we came on. And um, it's misty here, solid mist. You were saying that it's kind of good conditions where you are. So where are you based? I'm based um, on the Mediterranean coast of France, um, on the Côte d'Azur, just across the bay, within the Bay of Saint-Tropez. So I um, 
we've not been here that long. We, we lived in France for, well, I lived in France for about 20 years, but we lived on the other side, on the other coast, on the Atlantic coast for many years. And then during COVID, we just sort of decided it was time for a change. And um, it's long been a goal to come over this side. I tend, to, I tend to work a lot over this side with the sailing boats and, and horses and other things I do. So it was a sort of natural um, progression. And um, it just happened to coincide with the time when my kids had to change school because they're going up sort of different levels. So it just worked out really well. And um, we popped our house on the market over there and found somewhere over here. And then uh, it, it all happened. So the, the weather is one thing, as I said to you before, you, you don't worry about. But mist, mist is beautiful. And uh, one of my favorite conditions to work into i'm actually very jealous of you right now <laughs> good okay yeah i i know what you mean i just our part of town right our town is not misty but our part of town is known to be misty all oh, the time so okay. um maybe one day we can house swap sure and we, we'll see how the other half lives. <laughs> okay let's so uh, <laughs> well uh really appreciate your time today um i discovered your photography i don't know several years ago and i just remember seeing this image of you know white horses crashing through water and it was such a striking sort of powerful image mm. and so I, I would have followed through to your website and saw your sailing photography which is a, it's a different thing kind of a, a different style of thing but has your style your fingerprints all over it for sure thank you the sense of motion and adventure and you can almost feel the wind blowing there in those pictures so yeah preparing for this conversation i found out a couple of other things about you that i'm really keen to pick up on so um, yeah, really excited to get going. But um, I'm always keen to ask people where they started, how they grew up, how they got into photography. So um, you're in the south of France now, but you, you didn't start out there. That's correct. No, I, I grew up um, in Surrey, just outside London, um, born in Wimbledon and, and sort of lived uh, in that area for, um, yes, un until my early teens, really. And then um, sadly, my father died when I was 13. And my mother relocated us to the south coast a little village on the south coast of england called limington which is well known for for sailing um it's a small a small village but a small town but, but very lovely and that's mm. really I, i'd always been a big fan of the sea uh i hadn't really had much to do with cameras although i had did have one of my father's old cameras which had no film in it i just used to sort of hold it up in front of my face and, and mm -hmm. sort of frame things so i got quite used to seeing life that way i think it became a little bit of an escape you know and um, moving down to the coast and sort of having just suffered that well, trauma, if you like, I used to go on my own down to the sea a lot and just sit there and sort of seek a little consolation, I suppose, and, and um, with the sea. So it became a friend. It, it became somewhere to go. Uh, yeah. And a little while later, I moved to, to a bigger town, moved to Bournemouth in Dorset, a little further along the coast um, as a sort of young chap and um, had a friend who was a photographer. So he then took me to the next stage and taught me all about as it was then, darkroom and uh, processing film and, and everything and couldn't afford colour film so I got stuck into black and white mm. and absolutely fell in love with it and uh, has been that way ever since really so my work really tends to be oh, 99% black and white these days too so it really went, went that route, um, very organic then tried to make a bit of a go of photography when I was in my early 20s but had no, obviously no business sense or no idea on how to make it work I could take a picture or two and so... Um, to cut a very long and boring sto story short, I, I uh, went to, to uh, I, I got a job working for a, a, a surfing company, board sports, that sort of thing, doing marketing and sales for them. And then that led me down to France and then also gave me some weapons to, um, to this time run my own business. So after a few years with them, I left 
and uh, started up my own thing, but this time obviously had a bit more knowledge and was able to make a go of it, fortunately. So that's, uh, that's uh, in a nutshell, that's, that's, okay. why we're, that's how I got to where I am. Okay. And when you moved to the coast, so you started to have this relationship with the sea, I guess, if mm. I'm picking that up right. Was it just easier for your mum to, to be there for some reason with her family around or...? Uh, you mean the reason we walked down to move down to to Limington? No, I think it yeah. was just a change. You know, I think it was just okay. um, a change of scenery. And uh, I have three older sisters who were already married and and uh, had you know that had their own families. So I think it was just a way to just to change things up a bit. And she, yeah. I mean, I, I was asked a question, of course, whether it would be whether I would mind or whether I wanted to, and I very much did. I think life at that point became sort of almost like a film, a movie. And I was living this this kind of part in which my father had died, and that's how I sort of got through things. So, when it was asked whether we it would be okay to move down to the coast, it became part of that that script, that movie, and, and it sounded wonderful, you know, uh, as a sort of young chap to be doing that. So, it just filled it, it filled those gaps. It filled something. Uh, it gave me a sort of a reason to, um, yeah, the sea very much became a reason to to get up in the mornings in many ways, you know, mm-hmm. so it was very exciting and, and took my mind off all the other stuff that was going on. Yeah, yeah. Surely there's something about being just on the beach at the coast. I don't know, the sound and, and the rhythm of the waves is so calming. I, I mean, maybe that's something that you found as well, but is that then around, is that when you got into sailing or... Well, sailing sort of came then because Limington, as I said, is a very is a very well-known sailing town, and and um, a lot of the sort of Olympian sailors, the British Olympian sailors, are, are, are the from there or go and train there and live there or whatever. So, it's very much part of the heritage of the town. And yes, I did learn to sail there. And although I preferred being in the water rather than on it, I um, and still do actually, I uh, I. Um, I just my favourite way of being in the sea is just being in the sea uh, and just being you know with a pair of shorts on and just swimming around or a wetsuit or whatever. So yes, I learned to sail, but also fell in love with boats at that time. But but you know ones so I could look at the sailing boats, ones that are a bit faster. And uh, at that time, I also um, well, I became a lifeguard for a bit on on boats, uh, and that sort of taught me all about boats and and how they worked. And um, so that, with a bit of sailing and a bit of lifeguard training, I was sort of I felt quite equipped to you know to be with or on or next to the sea but sailing yes it's something i haven't done for ages i mean it's it's ridiculous because i take so many photographs of sailing boats but it's never i'm never sailing when i do it clearly it's it's i'm always on something else either another boat that's a bit faster or or a helicopter sometimes and then surfing as well and then so that's when you got into marketing right so you Mm. got i was interested to just um, dig into your marketing career a little bit um, and so you you work for another company and then you set up yourself. I think you said that. So I, I worked for a company. This this surfing the board sports company. It wasn't just surfing. They did snowboard stuff as well. But I, I'm not really oh, interested okay. in snow too much. But it was my sort of thing. Was this obviously the sea? And I would never tell. I would never say that I was a surfer. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm not really. But again, I had. I sort of found a little niche for myself. I was. I found I was quite good at those things, um, selling things and and. Um, and marketing things, having upcoming ideas of ways to develop things. And I learned a lot from the people that worked there who were very experienced. So, uh, yeah, I, then when, I, when we moved to France, I was basically put in charge of building the business in France uh, for this company. And so from scratch, um, hiring staff, um, you know, dealing with magazines, uh, the, the early websites and things, I was, that was all sort of my job. And mm. what I didn't know, I learned. And what I didn't learn, I just made up and just sort of busked my way through it. And, uh, and 
and it and we did okay you know did all right at it actually but it gave, what i did do as i said earlier was gave me a really good uh grounding in in that sort of thing when i got bored of it, it became a bit political the company grew very fast and um although everyone was wearing shorts and t-shirts it became a bit like a sort of nine to five uh, uh business job which i didn't really want at the time i was still only quite young so um i looked for ways to get back into photography and this time realized that Actually, I can do it. I had the confidence in the business side of things to, to mm -hmm. actually make it work. So the, f the photography was going on on the side as a hobby at the, at the time then? Yeah, it sort of started to. It, it, I hadn't picked up a camera for a while. It was just too busy with the other things. And then suddenly I sort of saw it sitting there and thought, no, it's time to get back into that again. And um, mm -hmm. I did and then started really enjoying it. And then um, well, actually my wife, uh, we found out my wife was pregnant with, with my kids. My two, my, we, we have twins. Uh, and when that, when I got that news, when we got that news, I decided I didn't want them. I didn't want them to have a father that worked for someone else. I wanted to be my own boss. It was just a. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it is nothing against people that do. Of course, it was just a personal decision. And and um, I was feeling a little bit oppressed at work, so I thought, well, this is one way to get around it. So we had a good chat and uh, stayed up all night talking about it. Next morning, I gave in my notice and um, started up my business. And uh, you know, took out a bank loan and uh, to get myself started and bought some equipment and gave myself a bit of money to, to live for a while. And of course, the fact that my wife was uh, every day um, showing signs of having twins here, there, it, it was the kick up the backside that I, I needed to get on with it. I couldn't hang around and just see what happened. I needed yeah. to just move it. So that was it was actually really good timing, I think. So what did your photography look like at that time? Um, this would be going to be 16, 17 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Correct. So I, you've got your passion for photography, your relationship with the sea. Mm. They came together, would you say? Yeah, they did. Um, when I was younger, I also had a quite a passion for, for, for drawing and charcoal. And I've always liked that sort of very simple lines of things. It's something I've always right. been very drawn to. So, you know, even back then, photography, I mean, I, there's still pictures that were taken back. They're not on my website now. Um, uh, I started really, it was, it was always black and white. And I started playing with obviously long exposures uh, initially through just being up early or out late and then buying filters. Uh, but it was, of course, you know, that at uh, that time, it wasn't a common thing. Nowadays, it's quite common to you know do lots of long exposures, black and white, and things things standing in milk. It's it's quite a sort of a common uh, thing these days. I mean, it's fantastic. But back then, it wasn't really. So I was just try I was experimenting, trying things out, and I suppose my work looked like it does now. I I, I wanted space. Um, I'm a very claustrophobic person. I like open spaces, and I think that comes across in my work that I don't like uh, things to be squeezed. I like to have yeah open spaces or leave gaps in things so so the eye can work its way around and and, and in those times in that first year uh, of of working on my own without having the confines of another job i really i was out every day just trying different things out um going down to the beach going to lakes just uh you know trying really all, all different things and um it was very interesting. I realized uh, that it was going to be tough, but I, I sort of very quickly found a brand uh, that I, uh, mm -hmm. as soon as I found myself having a brand, I, I found it very easy to work with because I was used to that. So I, yeah. I, I found that was the best way was to treat, treat myself like a brand, do something that, that you love, that, that, uh, that's, that's recognizable, that people understand your brand and then away you go, but, but just stick to what you love. 
and that's really what I've done ever since. To be honest with you, those those things I wrote those things on a on a piece of paper on my office wall, uh, you know, stuck it on my office wall those years ago, and and I've still stuck to that. Really, mm-hmm. do things you love doing, um, and and make it simple for people to understand what you do. And that way, I want I wanted to become the go-to person that did certain things. You know, and I mm-hmm. think that's pretty much what happened over the years. Yeah, that is totally fantastic advice, and yeah, I can see it's so interesting for me talking to people. Because you can just getting a bit of the backstory makes the photography make sense, you know. Yeah. Um, all those bits and pieces of your backstory just coming together into the work is mm. it's really interesting, and it just makes sense. So, um, so was it always workshops when you started? Was that always the way that it was going to be, or, or were you focusing on creating fine art? Well, both. I mean, I, 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 what, what I decided was another thing that was on my list of things on on the wall was, um, you know, this whole be true to what you love. So I made up my mind that I wasn't going to do any sort of photography that I didn't enjoy doing just for the money. It, it was mm-hmm. I, I had enough of sort of working for other people, and I, I, I'm quite a sort of stubborn individual, and I didn't like to be told what to do. Um, so I thought, no, whatever I do, it's going to be entirely for me. Uh, so I'm not going to do weddings or do anything else that I don't enjoy and again absolutely nothing against those photographers because it's an incredible job and must be very stressful but I thought no I'm going to stick to what I do and one of the ways to do that was to offer workshops basically was to um, basically provide income for someone who was just starting out Um, I thought it would be unable to stay true so basically I'm I'm teaching what I'm doing if you like even though Mm -hmm. it was early days Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's yeah that's what I did so my company ocean capture was was formed well literally overnight i i woke up at three in the morning with an idea for this brand and instantly mm-hmm. put it into a you know a search engine to see if there was another company called that and luckily there wasn't so i i bought the the url the, straight away and um st- started running workshops a few people said it would be a good idea i was already getting a little bit of a following uh, even that at that time which was very flattering and because i lived where I did, you know, in a nice part of the world, people thought, oh, well, it's not rocket science to actually start doing that. So I went on a workshop or two just to see how they were run and to see what, what that provided and, and thought it was interesting, thought I could do it. Um, and so I started running workshops. Um, I think it was the summer of 2007 was the first workshop I ran. And then Ocean Capture, of course, over the years has, has developed organically into being something completely different, something much bigger than I ever anticipated it being. But back then it was just me and sort of three or four people uh, drifting along the coast in southwest France and, and sort of uh, having fun. I wanted to ask you about your horse photography. I think I'm going to say this wrong, but it's in Camargue. Is that the area? Well, that's one of the areas. That's certainly where it started, Graham. It was um, uh, the Camargue is, is also on Mediterranean France, uh, but close to Marseille, uh, just past Marseille. It's a sort of it's the delta of the Rhone River, so it's a very flat area, uh, full of mosquitoes, and it's actually very beautiful. I make it sound horrible. It's a very beautiful area. It's got its own identity. It's a really beautiful place, but it has these white horses that have been there for well over a thousand years. No one really knows how they got there. They're not okay. wild. Uh, they're actually owned, but they live in the wild. So they very much live, you know, out, uh, out, out in the open. Um, yeah, I, st- I started photographing them purely because I, I'd, um, a conversation I'd had with my parents when I was a little chap on the beach in the south of the UK, where it was a rough day in the winter. I think we must have gone down there for a Sunday or something for a walk. And um, uh, it was a rough day and they, the waves were sort of rolling in. And of course, you get that white foam on, on top of the waves. And I asked... At seven years old, what's that? 
And I think my father said, oh, well, you know, explain what it was. He said, but another name for it is White Horses. And I thought, wow, that's, that's fun. You know, and so as a little chap, I, had, I was imagining these, um, these white horses running in from the sea. I thought that sounds very, you know, romantic and uh, emotive. And of course, I guess that got stored away, like so many of these things too, got stored away in my head until yeah. I think it was back in 2008 or nine. Uh, I'd been going for a couple of years and I was looking to push myself I, I was doing a lot of long exposures and pictures of waves and I thought well it's got to be more about that I don't want to just be doing this I want to sort of try and find a signature across different things but try and push myself to be you know out of my comfort zone and do things that are a bit different and uh, I happened to see a photograph of some it was a dreadful postcard picture with um, bright pink uh, sunshine and you know all the soft light it was, it was really sort of oversaturated but it was these horses running in the water and I noticed that it was, you know, in the Camargue. And literally the next day, I drove over there and started looking around, saw the horses, met some people, and then started shooting the horses there on my own. And uh, had no idea how to. I never shot a horse before in my life. Never worked with animals. Uh, I'd been on a horse a couple of times, but didn't really know that much about them. But fortunately, mm -hmm. my wife grew up with horses, so she was able to sort of tell me what looked good and what didn't in terms of horse uh, body language and what to look for and what to you know what to avoid and uh, I, I found myself in that situation where I I was treating the horse photographs differently to I was my own fine at the other stuff I was doing like the long exposures or the waves and then I suddenly realized that I shouldn't do that I treat it in exactly the same way you know I, I frame it in the same way I give things space I process it the same way and then suddenly as I, as I, I was learning suddenly I did that and it all dropped into place and hopefully mm -hmm. uh, it became a thread you know you can look at a, a long exposure picture of mine or something a bit more abstract and you look at a horse picture and it they all sort of run you know it, it sort of follows through yeah. but it took a while to get to that point uh, so the Camargue yes uh, we started running workshops there about a year later I suppose and it's been one of my most popular we still run we still go there twice a year to run uh, trips there and it's always a a very uh, gratifying experience and uh, an experience mm -hmm. is the right word it's a fantastic place to be so yeah you've answered like a few of the questions i had about that <laughs> topic actually I'll be so, no, it's, good. it's good no it's good <laughs> okay i was going to ask you how what you learned in marketing transfers into your photography but it's it's so clear about you staying on brand um and and the the sort of clarity that you have for what your brand is and how your photographs should look, but the strength and advantage that's giving you is is so clear, you know. So just practically, I was wondering. So the, the horses, I thought they were wild horses, but you're saying they're they're living wild. But I was just wondering practically how you control that situation. How do you get yourself in a position? photographically you know to shoot them successfully is that does that make sense it does yeah well normally i i camp out for three or four weeks um you know in the mosquito ridden wastes of the cabona that's absolute lie i don't do that at all uh there's <laughs> uh, i stay in a four-star hotel and people come and move the horses for me that's how it works okay. it's uh it's not it's by no means a hardship and it's it's a production it's a bit like if you were shooting a movie so um mm -hmm. the horses are uh, some of them we just move by on foot because some of them we want i want to shoot them close to where they live if you like um and sometimes it's a bit more complex if you want to go to sort of mediterranean beach or something uh we have to go early in the morning and then we have to bring horses there in horse boxes and the horses love it by the way they have a great time it's a bit like taking if you've ever taken a dog for a walk on the beach and you see yeah. that sort of release of, of energy uh, it's very much the same with the horses they absolutely love doing it um okay uh, i'd like to make that clear because I, it's it's not uh you know something i'm very conscious of uh, and we always stop once we feel that they're getting a little bit tired or bored 
But so it's a production. There's generally in each shoot, there's between five and nine people involved uh, with, with 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 things. Generally, they have people on horseback that will run, so gallop next to the horses just to keep them there. Of course, you don't see those in the photographs because you just they mm-hmm. they're, they're very well you know trained at it now, so they they know f- to stay out the way a little bit. Uh, and that's that's how it works. Uh, it's so it is it is a production. It's um, people you know when people come on workshops, they're quite astonished really how many people are involved in. In yeah. actually putting it all together, it's it's really exciting. It really feels like you're on a film set, like that. but at the same time, you yeah. have this sort of touch with reality and um, and also nature. And that's one of the things that I often say is that often these trips will attract wildlife photographers, of course, horses, you know, and photographers that have been to Africa many times. You know, they've been shooting elephants and lion and all those sort of things. You have a real disconnect with what you're shooting. You know, you don't you, you for obvious reasons. You 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 know you're you're using long lenses and you're staying away from the thing you're shooting because potentially it could rip your head off or do something very unpleasant to you. Whereas the horses, you yeah. you can actually give them a cuddle afterwards and they'll come up to you. You know, so they you're working with them for a bit and then they'll just come over. They're quite inquisitive and and uh, very lovely. And then you just give them a bit of a cuddle and and have a chat and then off they go. And uh, I, just, I just end up sitting with them sometimes and just letting them all come around and. Uh, it's a, it's a, such a peaceful, beautiful thing to do, and uh, mm-hmm. it's really good for the soul. You know, you, if you you feel really special afterwards, and uh, you really feel like you've had a connection with these these wonderful things. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I was wondering about the ranchers or cowboys who mm. help you, and obviously for your the photography that you're doing, they stay out of the way. But I wondered if that's potentially uh, photographic material there. I don't know. Are these cool? cowboy type guys or guys and girls Um, yeah they i mean they are generally yes i mean sometimes they'll come in the traditional um garb outfits which they're called the guardians um uh the english word would be guardian it's spelled almost identically the same way in french and originally they in the camargue also they breed black bulls uh like like you would see in spain um and the camargue became a sort of a place where a lot of the Spanish bulls were were were, were grown, raised, and then sent back to Spain. For, uh, sadly, a lot of times it's for, for bullfights and things, which is not so good. Um, but historically, the guardians used the white horses of the Camargue um, as a sort of four by four uh, to sit to, to to herd the bulls. So okay. they're very brave animals for a start, um, and. Yes, there was a traditional outfit that they would wear the hats and shirts and these sort of staves with this little three-pointed uh, trident. Uh, and that became quite a, uh, it's, it's quite a look. And so when, they, when there's a sort of uh, a particular festival or something, you often see the guardians putting on their traditional uh, uh, clothing. And yes, if they're wearing those, they're also good. They're, it's always good to, to include them in the shot or to have them in the shot. When it's mm-hmm. sort of um, you know a hooded anorak and a, it's not so quite so glamorous, but yeah. <laughs> these outfits are really cool. So yeah, it's always nice to to do that. But I'm not so much a people photographer. I tend to stick to the animals. It's kind of just the way I prefer. Yeah. Let me ask you about the Frisian horses then, um, which is literally in contrast to the the Camargue horses. <laughs> yeah. So you have these black horses in your fine art sort of contrasty black and white style. Mm. Um, it's really spectacular pictures. I, there's something about the the black horses on the white. It's so strong. Thank you. Is that a similar approach, or is there a different kind of setup for those guys? Yeah, it's entirely different. Uh, it, obviously, the idea is that it all, as I said, it all there's a sort of fluency that it all runs in. But no, th- those those horses. I mean, they are 
they are spectacular. They are incredible horses. Um, and they're enormous. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite tall. I'm about 6'2". And I look up at them, you know, they are, the stallions are absolutely enormous. Right. Um, and they're all, the ones that we use for the shoots are generally the, you know, real thoroughbred uh, top stallions, breeding stallions. And um, uh, so we have to have, you know, special permission. And, and they don't bring them out of the stables. They have to stay within a certain area. And that's how... Uh, I would I get those images either by sitting on the floor and then and then having shooting the horse against the sky, or sometimes we put up a white backdrop and it's all outside, um, mm. and shoot the horse against. I had this sort of idea in my head. Um, there was some portraiture by Rich Davidon, um, uh, the, the famous American uh, portrait and fashion photographer that I'd seen years ago, and it was a huge influence on me, where he shot people against a white background in black and white, and he sometimes push, put put them on one side with a bit of space on the left hand side. They're all black and white. And these really stuck in my head and I thought, well, maybe I can do that sort of thing with horses and, and actually treat them like portraits, you know, have these sort of profiles and, and with, mm. but with movement. And that's really what the goal was. And it, and it, and it sort of became a thing, you know, it became quite a big, uh, those, the, the, those prints, uh, it really surprised me. I mean, they are, the horses are magnificent, um, but the prints as well, we print them very big, you know, and they, they, they're quite a statement in a house or in a hotel or whatever. So they've, they've, they've sold very well for us, but um, for me, but uh, it started off with that whole portrait thing, as you know, you were saying earlier on about the strength of portraiture and how, how in fact, how many ways you can actually shoot a portrait. And this was this was just really a pinched idea, but or adapted idea from from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about you, you're selling your prints because I, I was thinking printing those must be really tricky to maintain, and you do a really good job on, on the screen anyway. You have the, all the contrast that you want but you're not losing any detail and it it doesn't look flat it still looks strong and chunky is that do you print yourself or do you get someone to do that well um it varies according to the size of the print as i said most of those particular uh, prints i mean i i process myself so i I prepare for print but i don't print the big prints myself um Mm -hmm. i am not i'm a bit clumsy when it comes to technology and when it's just a smaller print, you know, if you mess it up, it's not the end of the world. But when it's a big print, you know, if you mess it up too many times, then it starts to owe you, uh, owe you money and then it's not yeah. such a good idea. So I have people yeah. who are expert at that doing that. But the processing, I have a different, I have a slightly different way of doing things I, because I come from a darkroom background and now I work in mm-hmm. digital. But I did feel that I didn't want, I did feel I didn't want to let go of that um, that thing that the darkroom has in that there's there'll be a slight individual individuality between each print so if if you were Mm -hmm. to hold three or four or five or six prints from the same edition and put them next to each other on a wall there'd be slight changes in each one i I, i've Mm -hmm. always liked that sort of way of thinking so now how i do it is i reprocess every photograph every time there's a print order so i i go back to the raw file and i reprocess it get it all ready and then it goes out again. Uh, so when someone orders a print, it really is a one-off because it, it will be slightly different to the, to, to the other editions. And of course, it takes a bit of time. But uh, fortunately for me, my processing is, is not very heavy. I don't do an awful lot. It takes five, six, ten minutes, something like that, um, uh, because I'm very conscious of, A, getting it right in camera, uh, and B, I'm not doing too much of it. So it looks, I still want it to look kind of natural. So there's not too much stuff going on. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm very conscious of shadows and highlights and things like that. So as part of my black and white training, um, training myself, um, I wanted to achieve a lot of contrast, but without having any pure black or pure white or anything like that. So it's, it's all very mm-hmm. controlled. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all about shape. I think my composition also, I've, I've realized over the years, it's about shape, something that attracts you from 
a long way away. As you get close, you see more detail. As you get closer still, you see more detail. And I suppose that's what I've been trying to do. And so w- with those prints, you were saying they print you quite large uh, for the ones that you sell. Yeah. What kind of size are you looking well, at? Well, round about the, uh, I'll, I'll talk in meters if you don't mind, because I'm not, I've lost a bit of the inches uh, thing, but it's, um, <laughs> it's about one meter 25 square, something like that. I think it's okay, about five wow. foot or so, isn't it? Something like that. Um, oh, so amazing. yeah, they're quite, quite big. Um, it's on, uh, I use Hannah Mueller uh, photo rag, which is, a, I mean, I'm sure you know, you're nodding. It's for me, it's always been the one that holds the ink as well for those where there's a lot of darker ink you know there's a lot of dark stuff it holds that really well and has a texture to it which is really lovely so i've used it really right from the start and um don't really see myself changing unless something really truly amazing comes along Okay, I have my script on the side, which is prepared, but I'm going to go crazy and and go in a different direction. (laughs) I wanted to ask you about your influences because it's kind of come up with Avedon and it might lead me into my next, next question. Mm. So going back to when you were coming up and learning photography in the darkroom, who would be your photography influences or heroes at that time? There were a few things that I enjoyed, but but funny enough, I didn't follow any of the particular routes. A bit like Avedon, you know, I didn't become a portrait photographer, although from the 80s or 90s, I really loved his work. I was really, I thought this is just fantastic. And likewise, there was a a fashion photographer called Bruce Weber, who who was um, uh, also, you know, had only shot in black and white and had a real um, obviously working with people clearly you know the way he put people was just really interesting I found very unique and so those interested me although I knew that I didn't really want to become a fashion or a portrait photographer I had a bit of a bash at fashion photography um, doing a a few portraits and headshots for models out in the open on the beach and that was I I quite enjoyed that but it was um, not really where I wanted to go it was more of a just you know earning money to be honest this was early on when I was about 20 21 um, mm. But also, uh, I discovered people like the, um, Maurice Rosenfeld, who was uh, a photographer back in New York, uh, back in New York in the sort of 1920s, really, who uh, shot the sailing boats, uh, all the sailing regattas, um, uh, you know, with a huge wooden camera in a rowing boat, and just shot these beautiful pictures. Uh, you can still see their work online. And then his son sort of took over the business after that, and and, and they were a huge influence on me and, and made me realise you know that that sort of freezing of a moment of something that's so big it can it can look very spectacular and I almost saw it and in fact it's something that's been used about me and you mentioned it earlier on it's it's almost like you're taking pictures of the wind and uh, and I at least obviously the results of it whether it's a sailing boat or a mane of a horse I always kind of feel that I'm I'm looking at the reactions or the or the, the you know the, the results of the wind uh, and he Maurice Rosenfeld certainly brought that home he had a great eye for structure and uh yeah really beautiful work so that was a huge influence um and then who else i mean there's there's been so many to be honest Uh, not not the obvious ones a lot lot of people think oh well you know because it's your square and black and white it must be this person it it wasn't really it became it became a different route uh i i was much more influenced by people outside the area that i was interested in working with Mm -hmm. um those are the ones that spring to mind right now but there's been many others yeah uh, that's it's yeah it's interesting how influences can influence in different ways I mean I think you're saying it doesn't have to mean that you're going to copy that but something from from that can apply yeah. to your add it to your style or your um, your palette I guess 
I wanted to quickly ask you about the Arctic because there was something written on your website. I was really interested in, in this line on your website and I wanted to follow it up because hopefully there's some learning in here for me. It was a location that you'd visited many times but you'd struggled with or in your words, failed miserably. <laughs> um, and then something clicked that allowed you to create the images that you were happy with. Um, so there's a whole gallery on your website with these um, Arctic images. Mm. I was really intrigued about this process uh, or, the, or the moment or the r revelation or the shift in your mindset. And I was really interested to dig into what happened there because you said you had uh, one good day there, but it was 10 years in the making. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Yes, I've always felt that when you get things wrong, it's almost as useful as getting things right. You know, I think I've always been that sort of mindset that it's just because I mess up, it, it can be a good thing because it, it sort of channels you in a different direction or makes you think of something else. So that's always been a mindset of mine. I've never been one that moans about the weather or, you know, has to, I just sort of get on with it and see what happens. There's no, there's no plan generally. Uh, but of course, when you spend money and go somewhere as far as Greenland, you, you do expect that you're going to get something. And sure, yeah, you're right. That The first, well, I went, I think first in 2011 I went and I thought I'm going to take some pictures of icebergs and um, just didn't, just couldn't. I mean, I took pictures, but no, I just couldn't get, I think I wanted to sort of go high key and it wasn't working because it was too bright and I and I, I just, it really can, and the color blues are so beautiful and as a black and mm. white photographer, that was then became difficult because, so it, it, I just came away with a sense of, I've got a lot of pictures. Um, this was on my first trip, but I didn't really take anything. So I just left it. I thought maybe I'll, I'll like them. And I do this a lot as well. Maybe I don't like them now, but maybe I will, you know, in a few months or in a year or something. So I went yeah. back a couple of years later, went to the same place and exactly the same. It's like I'd learned nothing. Exactly the same thing happened. I, I, I couldn't see how I was going to make, I was taking pictures and they were okay, but they just weren't looking good. They weren't looking how I wanted them to go and like how I wanted them to look. And I couldn't work out why. Um, and I went once more and it was still the same. And I just thought, oh, well, I'm just going to leave it now because I'm obviously not, you know, stick to what, you, stick to what you're good at. <laughs> Don't push yourself yeah. that much. Cause, so I left it. And then I went back um, purely because I thought, no, I, I, I want to nail this. I want to get this right, or at least for my own benefit, just to. Mm -hmm. So I went back in 2019, uh, which was... Um, shooting on my own first of all and then for a workshop and uh i started shooting uh and it is a very beautiful place and i, I started obviously having this melancholy about uh, about the icebergs and, and whether my children's children would be able to see them you know uh, as um, for reasons that we won't go into now but for a fairly which are fairly obvious mm -hmm. and one sort of particular day on the boat i was struck with this sort of melancholy this sort of quite sad feeling and i took a lot of pictures that day and then got back um i think it was the last day of shooting if i remember rightly uh, and then got back to i didn't do anything with them there i wouldn't even i didn't even look at them but got back home and then left it for two or three weeks i often do that i'll leave things quite a while before i look at them um just because it changes your perception i think of what you're looking at and then thought okay well this time maybe i've got something started looking at them and then just still felt i was trying to do something not right with them and then covid happened uh and uh which was right after that and it gave me more time and I sat and looked at these pictures and I thought, hang on a minute. What I was trying to do was I was trying to go too, I think, too high key, trying to too, too sort of abstract with them. And it just wasn't, for whatever reason, it wasn't working. So I thought I'm going to go the other way. And it didn't take much in terms of the processing. It was just, just the way I did the contrast, really. Uh, mm -hmm. 
and I, it started to be thinking of, of, of the old cinema photography where they used to take these wonderful portraits of those, of those wonderful actors, you know, the, the Clark Gables and the Cary Grants and all those wonderful, you know, and the sort of drama or the way they used to light them. And then also mm-hmm. obviously work like uh, Ansel Adams and, and those, the wonderful work he did with the, with the California National Parks and others. And, I, and it took me back to that. And I, I decided to, although I never expected to get anywhere close to, to, to what he did, I'm not, I'm not at all in that league. It, it just inspired me to do something a bit more different, more classic sort of landscape, but with icebergs, if you like. And then I yeah. realized that there were actually some decent skies for that one day. And that one day that I'd spent a lot of time shooting, the weather was a little bit cloudy, a little bit mistier. And I think that, that had probably aided my melancholy. It sort of pushed it a little bit because it just felt a bit sort of flat. And, mm. and flat to a black and white photographer is, is heaven. Uh, and I'd sort of forgotten. You know, I'd got so involved. So I just took, 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 took loads of pictures. And then it came to me afterwards how I should treat them. And that's why uh, when, they, when I started working on them, I started getting sort of goosebumps not because i think they're brilliant but they were they were but but because i think they were what i was after without even realizing it um and uh yeah the 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 collection is called song for the arctic and i think that's about 15 18 pictures something like that uh all from that one day and you know and i think what a day you know i don't think i've ever taken that many in my eyes successful pictures in one day so it was it was a fascinating thing but a, a real lesson as i said a real lesson in patience and and um if it's going, if it's meant to happen, it it will eventually, maybe. Let me ask you about your workshops quickly because you've got Ocean Capture and Capture Earth, are your yes. companies, and um, I knew of Ocean Capture. I didn't know about Capture Earth, and mm. uh, following that up, that looks really really cool. Um, but really high quality workshops with yourself, and also pulling in other great photographers like Paul Sanders, who I've had on the podcast. Yes. Um, uh, Rachel Talibart is it Tally, yes. I'm not sure how to say her last name Ragnar Axelson what are the ingredients for you that make a great photography workshop well it's always been about it's always been about experience almost more than anything else uh, I think um, uh, and so I've always wanted to, you know, the, the choice of hotels, the choice, of, obviously, loca- let's, let's forget locations and photographic side of things, taking that for granted, because, of course, it's a photographic workshop. So that's going to that's going to happen. Right. I'm not, I'm not yeah. you know, but it's the other stuff. I, I always wanted to think about the other stuff, the other side of it. And um, uh, I felt that wasn't really being addressed with a lot of workshops. Um, and also I was running everything as if, if if I was going on one, how I'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it would always be with a photographer who I felt had, had, had earned their plate, you know, had, had really, not, not as a group lead, not as a tour leader, but as a photographer, had really found their place in, in whichever field they were representing. Some, someone who was yeah. a, a go-to person for, so that's why the Rachels, that's why the Michael Levins, that's why the, you know, Ragnar Axelson, all those people you mentioned, Paul, of course, Paul Sander, all these people are, you know, they found their niche, they found their thing, and they do it successfully, they sell prints, and then the tour thing, the workshop thing is it's sort of an addition to that. You're going there to learn or to, to listen to that person, to be guided around by that person, but in a very nice environment. So the hotels are either very, very high quality with good restaurants or they're very quirky in a good way. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. sometimes in these places we go to, there's not always a five-star hotel, but, but, but there'll be some are very good or very cool or very different. So it's always things we look for. So the research that goes into the trips is, is um, significant. And during a trip, of course, we uh, we try and we try and bring out each person's creativity rather than inflict our own, uh, mm-hmm. which is something very important. Um, 
we often don't take photographs ourselves while we're on trips. Um, Rachel doesn't at all. Paul hardly. You know, it's very much. It's very much. Uh, we're there for the group um, mm -hmm. and trying to make it work. There's processing and ideas and sitting around a table, but very much. It's as I said, bringing out the creativity of each person rather than just getting them to take your picture, which is a bit of a lazy route. So, those are the things really that makes I think that makes Ocean Capture stand out. Um, uh, we also run these Masters event, of which Capture Earth is one actually, but just under a different label. So, Capture Earth is it started with that actually. It's um, a wildlife event uh, held in Africa once a year, and we go to a rather nice luxury lodge somewhere in Africa, and we invite four of the best wildlife photographers in the world, whoever they may be, and it changes each year. Um, and then we invite 12 clients to share their knowledge. It's almost like a retreat. So the group of 12 gets broken up into small groups of three, and then each day you spend a full day with one of the top you know, legendary photographers. And um, it's, a, a, again, an amazing experience. There's talks and seminars and, you know, critiques, and it's, it's a real immersion thing in, in that. Um, and we often have talks... Um, from other people too like the born free foundation came uh, the last one we did and gave talks and went out for trips with us in, in, the, in the vehicles which was truly amazing so this is me not not as a photographer by the way I, i'm very much in an organizational role in this it's, i mean I, i'm sort of generally walking around with a glass of wine and just making sure everyone's okay that's my role in that yeah. which is lovely virginia mckenna um came to that trip so she, she was the actress from the 1960s that starred in the original movie of born free and okay. uh, yeah was a sort of i mean it's an amazing movie and to have her sitting on a Land Rover with us as, actually my kids came to that trip was a truly an, ex, an extraordinary uh, thing to do and her talking about the, the filming mm. of the you know of, of this great movie so it's very much again about the about um, creating something that you just can't get anywhere else uh, this adventure yeah. this experience and so I took that formula and then took it back to Ocean Capture and started the Masters of Photography which is where people like Michael Kenner Ragnar Axelsson Hans Strand uh, these other wonderful names, um, John Sexton. It's exactly the same format. So we go to a different location around the world somewhere, have four amazing photographers and a small group of 12 who then do the same thing. So, you know, learn from those and immerse themselves. And it really is a fantastic... Uh, we do other tours, of course, and workshops with Ocean Capture. We just do one of those every couple of years. And then apart from that, people like Rachel, uh, Paul, myself, we all run our own little workshops and tours in different places, all normally with, with water as, as being the sort of the main theme, hence the ocean, ocean Capture. But of course, with me, I add the horses, so I do the Camargan Frisians, etc. as well. But that's really it. It's just trying to keep it, as you said earlier on, about the brand, keeping it really tight, you know, sticking to what we love, what we know the best. That way you don't make too many mistakes. You know, you, you're constantly learning, but you, if you keep it to what you love, then the chances yeah. are you're going to get it fairly right. And um, uh, yeah, that's, that's how we go. Uh, and very, very happy with the way it's grown from just me, as I said earlier, running a few works you know a few workshops with three or four people now to uh i think we do something like 32 trips a year and some great names involved in it and um i'm you know i'm really delighted with the way it's gone it looks great I, i've run some workshops before and i i agree making the experience the bits in between is mm. is where it's what makes it i think because as you said the photography should be good you know that should Absolutely. obviously you'll be going to a good place but the one that really caught my eye uh, you do a workshop for five 
days, I think it is, photographing waves. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine how relaxed I would be after five days <laughs> photographing waves. I think I would completely pass out. I don't know. I've never <laughs> been that relaxed. I can imagine. I, I might book on. But um, yeah, the the capture earth one as well just looks amazing it's so Thank amazing you. if we if you're still good for time can we talk about gear let's do the gear round sure um what is your go-to camera lens combination i didn't expect that question actually i thought you were going to ask me about like what what's uh, what breed of camera i use so that was quite good you surprised me then i um <laughs> i like to well it depends on what i'm doing is the answer to that because i do as you said i'm uh, there's versatility is something that i like to keep nourished uh, so it does very much depend if i'm if i'm with a tripod um doing something in the mist um then it's probably some sort of zeiss i should think uh, i've got i've got from i think 18 through till 50 so it might be that um manual focus one so it could be that or it could be often 24 to 70 f2.8 um i'm a, i'm a nikon user i use the d850s uh have done for years i've got three of them um, not because I'm greedy, but because I need three of them for sometimes if I'm doing the sailing boats or whatever, you need that many because um, you're constantly mm-hmm. cleaning them. Um, I have crossed over to medium format uh, a couple of times, but just didn't like I, know, I liked it, but I felt that the cameras were a little bit too fragile for what I was doing. They get, you know, with the horses is mud, with the with the sailing boats is water. Uh, yeah. If it's not that, it's, I like damp conditions. I like drizzle and, as we said, mist and yeah. all those things. So I found the D850 is pretty indestructible. It, you know, it's they, they go through a lot of nonsense and I, I don't really look after them too well. And I've still mm-hmm. got the same three that I had, you know, when I first bought them, which is probably three years ago now. So they've been through a lot of things, four years maybe. Um, so yeah, lenses, the ones I use for horses and for the sailing boats, 24 to 70 to 70 to 200 is, of course, you know, the f2.8, which is a fantastic lens. And then sometimes a bit longer, I've got um, a 200 to 400 f4, which is a badly heavy thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's difficult in the boat. But uh, sometimes for horses, but mostly um, I've got a rather cheap 100 to 400 f no sorry 80 to 400 f 5.6 to something or other. Although it's a, it's not on paper a very good lens, I really like mm-hmm. what it does. Uh, it, it feels um, uh, especially with the horses, it feels quite nice. I like the sort of effect that it gives. It's not too perfect, and I quite like that. I think. So yeah, I use okay. that a bit. It's a very, it's it's actually over here now. It's very beaten up and got mud and scratches and all sorts of stuff all over it. But it's quite a good one just to stick in the camera bag. So that's really about mm-hmm. about it, I think. You process your work yourself, or using Lightroom or a different? Yeah, I, I start off in Lightroom, so I I sort of download everything into Lightroom first of all, and then I spend a bit of time there sorting through things. As I said, I normally leave it well maybe three four weeks before I actually after any shoot. Um, to actually have a proper look um, and then I I sort of have a quick look have make us a few decisions about you know about which ones I like and then uh, we'll whisk things through to I'll do a little bit there I'll go into black and white there and then it'll you know a little bit of contrast and curves and things and I'll take it into Photoshop just to finish it off not for any other reason it's just that I, I've been using Photoshop I used it when I was even doing the marketing back in those days so it's a piece of software I just felt at home with so when Mm. I'm working on something uh, when it goes to Photoshop for the last sort of 30 seconds or minute of its sort of processing uh, it's where I like to finish things off I I feel sort of comfortable there so I can look at it and say yeah now you're finished so uh, that's what I use yeah 
I don't know, all or most or a lot of your photographs are square um, on all, all your website? Them, I, think. I think all of them, if not, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, 90, certainly 99% anyway, yeah. So, yeah, I, was, I, was, I knew that you used the 850, but I was wondering, I know you said you doubled in medium format, but from my experience, shooting a square is a different thing than cropping it square from a rectangle. Do you find it... Um, you, obviously, you must be used to it, but is, do you find a challenge with the square cropping later, uh, or would would there be any advantage to you to be able to shoot it square? Um, I do shoot it square now. The eight fifty you can you can shoot in square, which is brilliant. So oh, you that's, can, yeah, um, which is great. Previously, I think the closest I could get to was a sort of five by four, you know. Uh, so okay, and so I used to shoot that and then just crop it. I got very used to just shooting a little bit wider than I wanted to, or you know, making sure okay. the stuff I wanted was in the right place. Um, and again, just taught myself that by by sort of cropping pictures I already had and and just seeing what you know, just just spending a bit of time uh, working on that. I do like I'm, composition is incredibly important to me, and I and I, uh, I mean it's mm-hmm. singularly the most important thing. So I do I'm very finickety. Uh, there's a good word about that, and um, mm-hmm. has to be right. So I'll sometimes make little adjustments in Lightroom, uh, but generally, yeah, in the old days, I used to crop it back into a square from a five by four, but nowadays it's, it's square anyway. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, so if I'm the, sh- sorry, go on. Go on. Sorry, I was just going to ask if the viewfinder closes down to a square then. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm basically seeing a square like you'd see a rectangle. So I'm looking through, okay. it's, I think some of the cannons, they just put black lines down either side. Um, but in the Nikon, uh, you you see a you know basically all I'm looking at is a square of, of what's going okay. on. Okay, so, yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, cool. yeah, I love it. It's cool. Did that co- that sensibility? Did that come from shooting a square at any point? Were you growing? Uh, were you shooting like a a medium format film camera before? Yeah, I, I was. Um, I dabbled with Hasselblad early on. You know, I still I've still got it actually. I've got a 500 cm. Um, which of course shoots square, you know, uh, and uh, I loved that. I, there was something about the square, I, and, I, and I know that it's become a big thing now with Instagram and other things that the square has become very fashionable. Um, but this is, it, with me, it's not a fad, obviously, clearly. I've been doing it a long time. It's just something I just love, mm-hmm. and I've tried to try other things. I've tried to sort of push myself and say, well, don't be so boring, do other things apart from a square. And when I do, it just doesn't feel like me, you know, it doesn't feel right, so I go back to it. There's just something about the shape I like. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's just a, a balance. Uh, I think it really, because it's so unlike what you look at, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it adds to the sort of slightly surreal, you know, the fact that it's in black and white, the fact that it's in a square, um, it, it's, it adds to that su- surreal sort of quality that, that I'm trying to produce with my pictures anyway. It just is. It's, and, I, and I just like it. I just I feel comfortable there. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. I love it. I love shooting a square. Haven't done it for many years. Mm. But now that I know that 850 can do it, mm. I, I'll, I might go and get one. But anyway, <laughs> cool. um, as if I've got loads of money lying around. Thanks for that. This takes us to a round called Double Exposure, okay? I'm going to ask you the story behind one of your pictures that I really like, and then I'll ask you to tell me the story behind one of your pictures okay. that you really like. Yeah, the one I'm going to go for is Feather Iceland. It's... Mm. Um, so maybe cause people are listening to this in the car, they may not be able to see the picture. So maybe you could describe the picture and, and tell us if there's a story behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's a picture of a feather in Iceland, uh, basically. It's, um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, so uh, it's basically um, a, a volcanic beach. Uh, there's a sort of section, it's quite, it's quite an abstract shot. It's sort of a close-in shot. 
and there's a bit of beach and in the top corner there's a bit of white sort of foam uh, from the sea just kind of coming in and then somewhere in there there's this just white feather that's lying on the black sand so it's it's obviously a black and white most of the picture is is black dark sand um with some little sort of little highlights in the sand which is which, which i really like and then you've got this foam and the feather and um yeah it's another one of those i told you earlier on i don't get sort of moody about weather or or things on and glasses always half full and this was exactly one of those situations where i went mm-hmm. to this particular beach in iceland to go and shoot something um and i can't remember what it was it was probably some rocks or you know something pointing out towards the sea and the weather was the weather was terrible it was the wind was howling in bringing with it rain and so it was that sort of horizontal rain that you just can't do anything with so i thought oh fair yeah. enough i'll go i'll go back to the car uh, and then just as i was walking back with my head down um i just noticed the feather that was just on the beach uh, and i thought oh that's nice you know the, the white feather against the black beach i said it just needs i thought it just needs something else in that and, and there's a picture there and then as soon as i thought that the, the the tide just came in a little bit and i just sort of saw it in my peripheral vision and just sort of came it almost wrapped itself around the feather so i thought there you go mm. and it, i was facing a different way to the wind was blowing and the rain was coming so i think i spent three minutes shooting that i think i took maybe three pictures of it three or four pictures of it in the end on a I mean, no filter, uh, but it was probably a few seconds exposure because it was just it was so dull and horrible, you know. And I was pointing mm-hmm. downwards, so there was no light coming in. And uh, as soon as I'd taken it, I thought, oh, do you know, I really like this. There's something about this picture. It's quite, it's, it's different, and I, and I like what it represents. That it's not, you don't always get what you want, but there's always something, you know. There's always something mm-hmm. there. So um, I thought, I don't know whether anyone else will like it, uh, but I really liked it. So that well, that's the important thing for me. So uh, up it went, and literally within. Yeah, I think I'd process it about a month or two after I got back. And straight away it became a book cover, it became this, became that. And I thought, wow, other people do like it. You know, that's interesting. And funnily enough, it often gets picked on, mm-hmm. picked up on as being, you know, to, to chat about, which is which is lovely. I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's a nice picture. Obviously, we've spoken about the horses and stuff, so we wanted to go for something that was a, a little different. But again, your style is, is on that. So just to throw it back to you, is there one favorite picture or something that's just got a great anecdote that goes with it that you could share? <laughs> Blimey, you've thrown that at me, haven't you? Um, I need to have a quick look at my website to remind myself. <laughs> um, there's, yes, there's, there's, always, there's always stuff. I mean, every, every photograph represents, uh, this sounds like a stalling technique while I'm actually looking at my own pictures, uh, because it is. Um, every picture really represents a story. And, and I said earlier on that I don't sort of take pictures of people very much. Well, I don't really. But uh, I mean, hardly. But there, but every generally every trip that I do, there are people involved at some level, and you know, and, and over the years I've met some really wonderful. So often these pictures actually have anecdotes about people. But I did some stuff in. I've been to Zanzibar two or three times, and I, I really love working in um, mm-hmm. uh, in in East Africa. I, I love the people. I've been to Mozambique. Um, I've been to, to you know Zanzibar. These mm-hmm. places that I love the way that they live with the sea, adapt with the sea you know eat from the sea and the people are generally uh Mozambique's going through a bit of a hard time at the moment I'm really I'm really sorry for them but uh, um, you know generally you, you it's a very enlightening and lovely experience and um every time I go uh to those areas I'm always have these wonderful experiences with the people and I, I work with these fishing dows so these basically these fishing boats or trading boats where they you know originally they used to sail them from East Africa over to India or to to Arabia as it was called then Mm-hmm. Uh, for trading and the smaller versions were used for fishing and they have these beautiful sails which are really unusual and I have these there's a few pictures on my website um, in a portfolio that's called To Catch a Thief 
sorry, it's not called that at all. That's a film. It's called To Catch a Fish. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, there's, there's a few pictures from there where I'm either in the water up to my waist shooting some people sailing uh, uh, or I'm on the boat itself shooting the sail. And those just normally, those trips are just filled with laughter and good fun and, and uh, people are singing and, you know, you, the water's warm and, uh, you know, it's, uh, and I, I'm not at all thinking about my insurance policy because my camera's about three centimeters above the surface of the sea. It's just, mm-hmm. just a really fun thing. And I think there's a few pictures in there, which I, I look back on and it just makes me smile because I just remember the, the smells and, you know, the sounds and everything else. Uh, you know, when someone else looks at one of those pictures, maybe it, well, hopefully it means something else to them, which is brilliant. But for me, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I remember. And uh, there's a few, there's a two or three pictures of just hands um, holding ropes uh, also. And again, you know, I don't take pictures of people much, but I really love the, the, those pictures. I think they mean something to me uh, because the people did, you know, they were, they were generally lovely people and mm-hmm. uh, I enjoy those moments. So probably if I had to pick anything, although they all have their own story, that little group, um, I'm thinking about it a lot at the moment because I'm thinking about going back out there at the end of this year. So uh, that's probably why it's on my mind today uh, because I've just been looking into it. But yeah, I, th- I think those pictures I- I'm really happy with. The horse pictures, of course, always, uh, especially the Camargue, it has a real, and, and the Icelandic horses, they have a real special place in my heart too uh, for the people, but of course, mostly for the, for the animals, which are just amazing, really amazing. Great. Well, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. People can check those out. And it's just a fantastic gallery. Thank you. Um, and it's there's some pictures there from different places as well. So it's well worth checking out. So, Thank you. Um, okay, thanks for sharing that. This is the last round. If you've got two minutes or as sure, fast Greg. as we can go. go ahead, because no, it's fine. a quick fire motor drive round. Okay. Wow. So let's go. Wide angle or telephoto? Oh, see, that's horrible. Quick fire. <laughs> um, at the moment, telephoto. So I'll go that. Okay, yeah. uh, coffee or tea? Oh, God. Um, right, if I'm in England or at home, it's tea. If I'm anywhere else, anywhere else in the world, it's coffee. Fair enough. Um, stay up late or wake up early? Wake up early. Okay, this one, I don't know which way you're going to go on this, but this is the ultimate <laughs> question for the okay. whole podcast. Expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? Corner of my shirt. Okay, I really thought you might be a lens cloth guy. But it's good. <laughs> oh, no, I, I have one. I have. I have several. <laughs> but but it's, the corner of the shirt is just better because it's the one you've got right next to you. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's there. It's the best cloth available. So, yeah. um, what's your go-to emoji? Um, probably the the one that looks like someone saying thank you. You know, the hands pressed together. The, that's yeah. that's probably the one that I uh, use the most. Uh, I think. Yeah, okay. I'm not very good at emojis or anything like that, but. Uh, yeah, that's probably the one I'd use the most. Good. I like it. It goes with your glass half full gratitude vibe that you have. I love <laughs> it. Okay, you live in the south of France. I don't know if you're an expert on French music, but which is the best um, French band or musician that we should check out? I, I, I have absolutely no idea uh, because I don't really follow French music too much. Um, but having said that, I'm, I'm actually going to the Camargue um, for a workshop in about... Well, next week, actually. And not a lot of people know that there's a very famous band uh, called the Gypsy Kings who were um, a sort of this gypsy band who sing in a sort of Spanish, they're very sort of flamenco-y sounding. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they mm-hmm. became a sort of an international success with some of their songs. Yeah. And um, they are from the Camargue. They're actually French and they're from the oh, Camargue. Really? And um, I've actually met a couple of them and, and even had a couple of them singing at an event that I did there, which was a, an amazing experience. So when we go to the Camargue, I generally 
have got something to do with that sort of music, this kind of gypsy music, which is very much part of the area. So if, if nothing else, then check out a bit of French flamenco from the Camargue, and then you'll, you know, on a summery day, when, you're, when the sun's sort of shining and you're, you're out, it's a nice thing to listen to. It puts you in a good mood. Great, great answer. Um, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag? A weird thing you can find in my camera bag uh, would be, well, do you know, I'm, I'm really, anything really, because I'm really, I tend to pack things sort of panicking because I always leave it to the last minute. So I've, I've gone off with all sorts of things that shouldn't be in there. I've gone off with the remote control to the television. Uh, I've gone off with, <laughs> um, you know, all sorts of strange things. So who knows? It's really a bit of a sort of potluck what, what you're going to find in there each time I go away. But there's always generally something in there that shouldn't be there. Uh, my wife's hairbrush was one. And as you, you know, I, I tend not to use those. Um, and um, um, I don't know, all sorts of strange things. My, my, oh, yes, this is the most embarrassing thing. When my daughter was about six, a pair of her pants went in there. And I thought it was my lens cloth because it was the same color and, and, and pulled out this lens cloth for once. And it was actually a pair of my six-year-old daughter's pants, which was a li little bit embarrassing. So there's always something strange, strange that shouldn't be in there. But well, God knows what it is this time. Yeah, I have a six-year-old. I can understand how that could happen. Okay. Totally. Thank, you. Thank you for your understanding. <laughs> so um, we've spoken about photographers. So I'll skip that question. Last question. When do you feel at peace with the universe? That's a really good question, Graham. Uh, well, they all have been. Um, I think when I know my family's okay, you know, when there's um, when I feel that everyone's happy here, that's probably the, that box has to has to be ticked. Uh, if I'm out on a boat pottering around out on the coasts here, um, with the sun shining and um, like my kids are with me or my wife's with me, or and we're just sort of pottering around uh, on and jumping off the boat into the water and and swimming and stuff. Those are the moments where I feel probably the most comfortable and the most at peace because I'm I'm in on, or on the water. Um, my kids are there. You know, it's it's just a, it's a, and 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 everything is good. You know, even if it isn't, it's just for those hours, everything's fantastic. So uh, last time we did it, my son just looked at me and said. Uh, I don't think I've ever been so happy. And um, we were just sort of exploring some caves or something from the boat, you know. And it's just to hear that from a 16-year-old is pretty special. So yeah. uh, those moments probably are the most uh, most exhilarating in terms of uh, feeling very at, at peace with everything. Yeah. yeah, that's an amazing, great answer. Great guest. Thank you, Jonathan. I learned so much in this interview. Um, Thank you, Graham. Yeah, it's, I really uh, appreciate your photography. I respect how you've gone about it. And so... Thanks for your time. Have a great day. You as well. Thanks for everything, Graham. Take care. Thanks for listening. Follow Jonathan on Instagram. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, then check out my conversations with Howard Schatz and Paul Sanders. That's all for now. Take care. Enjoy your photography and I'll see you out there.